All right, well, we're there in 2 Samuel chapter number 8. And this is kind of one of those types of chapters that you might just kind of read through. And maybe the average church would probably skip this chapter and not really say a lot about what's going on here. But I want to uh, go through and kind of just explain to you what's happening here and just to tell you the story and give you some insight as to some things that you may not be aware about. And then uh, once we've gone through and kind of explained what's happening, then I want to give you just four statements. Just make four applications at the end, and we won't be very long tonight. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says, And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines. I, want you, I like this wording. It says, And subdued them. It says that he smote them and subdued them. And David took... Uh, Meheth Gema, or however you pronounce that, out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, here's what's interesting about this chapter is that we basically are getting a rundown of the battles that David fought, the wars that he fought, the different people he, he conquered. And here in verse 1, we see the first enemy that's mentioned, the Philistines. Now, uh, keep your place there in 2 Samuel chapter 8, and go with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 18. Just to show you something interesting, 1 Chronicles 18 is a parallel passage to 2 Samuel chapter 8. What I mean by that, it it covers the exact same event. Uh, Sometimes in Scripture, you'll have different books that cover the same events. You'll see that a lot in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes you can compare those and learn different things. Uh, When you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 18, I'd like you to keep your place there. You can put a bulletin or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it, all right? So we're going to leave First Chronicles and we're going to come back that way. But I want to show you in Second Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told that David took Methagema, but in First Chronicles 18.1, the Bible says this, Now after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took, I want you to notice it says Gath. This is the same city being referred to. It just has a different name. And if you remember, Gath was the city that Goliath came from. Remember, Goliath was of the city of Gath. So when David took the Philistines' land, when he smote and subdued them, he primarily attacked Gath uh, and her towns out of the hands of the Philistines. I just wanted to show you that, just kind of something interesting there, as you compare spiritual with spiritual. Now go back to 2 Samuel, but make sure you're able to get back to 1 Chronicles 18, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But I want you to notice verse number 2. We continue with this roll call of uh, battles that David won and wars that he won. 2 Samuel 8.2 says, And he smote Moab. That's the second nation mentioned in the chapter and measured them with a line notice the wording casting them down to the ground even with two lines measured he uh, to put to death and with one full line to keep alive and so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts that term brought gifts means they were basically uh, paying tribute or paying taxes uh, to David so he he uh, smote them he subdued them and now they are bringing gifts uh, to to David because if you remember when God told Joshua to enter into the land. He specifically told them there were certain nations that they had to kill everyone, destroy everything, burn it all up, and and basically eradicate them from the land. But other people, God did not necessarily want them to just go in and kill everyone. And here we see David, he's conquering them, and then they're bringing gifts. They're bringing uh, their tribute unto him. Look at verse 3. David Simone also, here's the third mention, had had a Dezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. So as we're going through this roll call of nations that David is conquering, there are also two Old Testament uh, 
I say Old Testament, but two prophecies, let me put it this way, from the book of Genesis that are accomplished in this chapter, okay? You're there in 2 Samuel 8, keep your place there, go to Genesis 15 and look at verse number 18. Let me show you uh, what I'm talking about. Now, I want you to be able to flip back and forth, so make sure you're, you've got your place in 2 Samuel, so you should, you should have a finger in 2 Samuel chapter 8, a uh, 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 finger or bookmark in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, and then we, you want to get to Genesis. First book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Genesis 15. And look at verse number 18. Genesis 15 and verse number 18. Now, on Sunday nights, we've been going through the life of Abraham, uh, studying the patriarchs, the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And lately, we've been talking a lot about the Abrahamic covenant. And here in Genesis 15, we have the Abrahamic covenant again. We, we were actually in Genesis 15, 15 last week. But look at verse number 18. The Bible says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. And notice, when God tells Abraham the land that he was going to get, he says, From the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. So you got the river of Egypt down at the, at the south, and then you've got the river Euphrates up at the north, you know, uh, where you've got Babylon. And, and God told Abraham that his descendants would conquer that land. Well, when you study Joshua and, and the book of Judges, you find that they never make it that far. They never actually get there. And, you know, you might start to think to yourself, you know, well, did God fail? But if you go back to 2 Samuel 8 and you look at verse 3, you'll notice that when David became Become king, becomes king, and he becomes, becomes to, goes and, and takes over land. In verse 3 it says, David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border to the river Euphrates. So you notice there that the fulfillment of what God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 18, that they would have a land up to the river Euphrates is, is brought to pass here in 2 Samuel chapter 8 when David becomes king and basically conquers the land and takes it up to the river Euphrates. When David was king and Solomon is when, the, when the, the nation of Israel was the most powerful, had the most land, and their land went all the way up to the river Euphrates. Look at verse 4. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. And David, notice this word, it's pronounced hocked. I don't, don't ask me why the English nation, uh, the English uh, language is a weird la- language, but according, according to dictionary.com, it's pronounced hocked, all the chariot horses, and what that means is to disable by cutting the hamstring, but reserved of them for a, uh, in a hundred chariots. So basically, he conquers them. They've got more uh, horses than he's able to take. So he basically just uh, performs this act where he cuts their ham- the hamstring of the horses, basically disables them so that they're not able to use them in battle, all right? And uh, today, you know, David would have people protesting against him, and Peter would be all upset, you know, but that just shows you how much God thinks about animals. Look at verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor, now the word succor means to help or relieve uh, Hadarezar, king of Zobah, because David basically conquered Hadarezar. So then the Syrians come, and they're there to help Hadarezar, king of Sora. Notice the fourth, the fourth uh, nation that he takes. Uh, David slew the Syrians, 220,000 men. So they show up to try to help. 
the guy that he just got done beating, and then David whoops them, you know, and you got a fourth nation that he takes over. Look at verse 6. Then David put garrisons. Now, the word garrison means a military post. It is a place where troops are stationed. It's like a base, but a small base. And he, the Bible tells us that David, uh, in verse 6, then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. Could you imagine that? You show up. You're not even part of the fight. You just show up to help your friend, and now you got conquered, and now you got troops in your land, and now you got to bring gifts to David uh, as well. No, notice uh, Verse uh, 6 again, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord, I want you to notice this phrase. We find it two times in this chapter. The Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. That's the first mention of that phrase. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were uh, on the servants of Hadarezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Berothai, cities of Hadarezer, King David took exceeding much brass. Now notice verse 9, okay? Because up to this point, we've been talking about all his enemies and the battles he's been fighting. And even, you know, the Syrians come and they're not even fighting David, but they just come to help their friend. And then he whoops them too. And we've talked about four nations. Here... We have a mention of an ally. Notice verse 9. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the hosts of Hadarezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, unto king David to, notice, salute him and to bless him. Now you say, well, why did Toi want to salute and bless David? Because he had fought against Hadarezer and smitten him, for Hadarezer had wars with Toi's. Okay, so you, now you got this fifth king that's mentioned, Toi is the enemy of Hadarezer. David just got done whooping Hadarezer, and David just got done whooping the Syrians who came to help Hadarezer. So Toi says, hey, we're fighting the same enemy. You know, let's be friends. And you have an ally here. He sends Joram, his son, to King David to salute, to bless him. Notice the last phrase in verse 10. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated. And I want you to notice this phrase. This kind of is putting a context as to what's going on in this chapter. And all nations which he subdued. David is conquering. David is subduing. David is advancing the kingdom of Israel. Notice verse 12. Uh, we get a, a, another breakdown of the kings. And, and, and in verse 12, we even have some kings mentioned that weren't mentioned uh, prior in the chapter. Notice of Syria, number one, and of Moab, number two, and of the children of Ammon, number three, and of the Philistines, number four, and of Amalek, number five, and of the spoil of Hadarezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, number six. Notice verse 13. And David got him a name when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians in the valley of Saul, being 18,000 men, and he put garrisons. Now, I want you to notice, this is the second. Remember I told you there's two prophecies that we get in the book of Genesis, and they're both fulfilled in in 2 Samuel 8. The first one was that Abrahamic covenant that the nation of Israel would have land up to the Euphrates River. Here's the second one, 2 Samuel 8, 14, and he put garrisons. Remember, a garrison is a military post. In Edom, throughout all Edom, put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Now remember I told you, we got that phrase that appears twice. The Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. That's the second mention. But let's look at this prophecy quickly. Go back to Genesis 25, just real quickly. Genesis chapter 25. And you say, well, what is the prophecy here that's being fulfilled where David put garrisons, a military post, or stationed troops, 
in Edom, throughout all Edom, put he garrisons. What is that a fulfillment of? Genesis 25, look at verse 22. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, You know the story, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one, shall, and the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, we're, of course, we're talking about the birth of Esau and Jacob, right? And we were told when Esau and Jacob were born that uh, the elder, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. Now, if you study, and we're going to study it in the Patriarch series, you study the life of Esau and Jacob, you never find Esau uh, being in subjection to Jacob. In fact, you find the opposite. Remember when Jacob comes back after 20 years of running from home, Jacob's all scared about what Esau is going to do. Remember Esau comes with 400 men, all right? So you say, well, when was that, when, when was that prophecy fulfilled if Esau never was in subjection uh, to, to David? Well, it was fulfilled not in the individuals, Jacob and Esau, but in the two nations that came from them. Because if you look at verse 23 again, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people. And he says, the elder shall serve the younger. He's talking about the fact that the, uh, that the elder nation, the, the nation that came from the elder brother Esau, which was the nation of Edom, will serve the younger, which was the nation of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. You have the 12 sons of Israel, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, who became the nation of Israel. So when you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and you read in verse 14 that David put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servant. We are fulfilling the promise that was given to Jacob and Esau that the elder will serve the younger. So you got prophecy being fulfilled here. This is why it's important to not just read. You say, well, th- what? there's no interesting story in this chapter. You know, I want to read David and Goliath. You know, don't skip these because there's a lot of important things. Everything is in the Bible for a reason. And I don't have time uh, to, to go there now. But we talked about this on Sunday morning in Romans 9 where it says the elder shall serve the younger. And then the Bible says about God that he said, Esau have I, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I don't personally believe that God hated the man Esau. I think he's talking about the nation that was named Esau. Because again, when you go back to that quote, it's talking about two people are in thy womb in two manner of, of people. But go back to 2 Samuel 8, look at verse 15. Because the nation was wicked, not Esau the man. Esau the man had problems, but the nation was wicked, and that's who God hated in Romans 9. Uh, 2 Samuel 8, look at verse 15. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. So David is succeeding. David is winning. David is fighting. David is conquering. But notice, we end the chapter with, uh, with a roll call of David's administration. And, and here's the point. No one, does, you know, no one succeeds on their own. Everybody needs help. And here we find that David wasn't just succeeding on his own. David had men behind him that would help him. Look at verse 16. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. He was the, the captain. He was the general. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Sariah was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was, both, uh, was over both the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were chief rulers. So I, I want to just kind of, I want to go through the chapter, just kind of explain to you what's happening, just so you understand the prophecy being fulfilled. And I, I, I want to just 
that, that was kind of all introduction, all right? Let me give you as quickly as I can four statements. You say, well, what can we learn from this chapter? What can we learn from this uh, uh, story in the Bible? And I'd, I'd like to just, as quickly as we can, give you four statements, four lessons we can learn from this chapter. We'll pray and, and, and we'll move on, all right? We'll be dismissed. But let me give you these four statements. Number one, we can learn this, that we must advance the work of God. You know, what I like about this chapter, and, and look at verse 1 again. Just, just look, look at the, the mentions. You know, David smote the Philistines and subdued them. Uh, uh, in verse 2, and he smote Moab. And in verse 3, David smote also Hadarezar. In verse 5, we're told that David slew the Syrians. In verse 11, we're told that all the nations uh, which he subdued, and then we're given the roll call in verse 12, Syria, Moab, Ammon, uh, the Philistines, Amalek, and Zobah. And, and, and here's what I want you to say. Did you keep your place in First Chronicles? Remember I told you First Chronicles was a, par- uh, 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 a parallel? Go back, go, go to First Chronicles 18, look at verse 3. Notice the phrase that is given in First Chronicles 18 about what David is doing in this chapter. And David smote Hadarezar, king of Zobah, unto Hamath, 1 Chronicles 18, look at verse 3, and he, David, went to establish his dominion. The word dominion means rule or control. David went to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. Now, go, go with me to the book of Luke, just real quickly. In the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke. And let me make an application here. David was king of Israel. David had, was not only the king of Judah at this point, he was the king of the northern uh, part of Israel. He was the king of the entire nation. But what I like about David is that David was not happy to sit back and say, look what I've accomplished, look where I've come, look, I'm the king now, I was running. You know, David was the type of guy who said, there's more work to be done. There's more land to be taken. God promised us the nation. God promised us this land. All the way in the book of Joshua, all the way back in Genesis, we were told that we were supposed to conquer up to the river Euphrates. And David had this idea. He was not just content to sit there with the success that he had, but he had this idea that we must advance the work of God. We must advance the the work that God has given us to do. If God has given us more land to conquer, then we must take that land. If God wants us to do more, to accomplish more, then we must take that land. And you know what? As New Testament believers today, we have to learn from the life of David that you and I need to not be content to sit and say, well, we got 150 people coming to church. Well, we got 50 soul winners showing up. Well, we got 100 people showing up for Wednesday night church. We're doing pretty well. In fact, we're doing better than most independent fundamental Baptist churches. So why don't we just sit here and all stare at each other? No, no, no. It's our job to advance the work of God and to take more land. Joshua said to the children of Israel when he was getting ready to die, he says, there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. And you know what? Tonight I want to say to Verity Baptist Church, there remaineth very much land to be possessed. There's more people that need the gospel. There's more people that need to be reached. There's more work that needs to be done. And listen to me. God called us to do more. Are you there in Luke 19? Look at verse number 11. Luke chapter number 19 and verse number 11. 
In Luke 19, we have a, a parable that Jesus Christ gave. And I want you to notice what he said. He said, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman. Now, in this parable, Jesus is that nobleman. A certain nobleman went into a far country. Jesus right now is in a far country. He's in a heavenly kingdom. He's up in heaven to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Jesus one day is coming back. He's coming back for us. Look at verse 13. And he called his ten servants. In the parable, you and I are these ten servants. And delivered them ten pounds. So those are the resources God has given us. Our ability, uh, finances, whatever it may be. What, the, the things that God has given us to be able to accomplish the task, the task that he's given us. And delivered them ten pounds and said unto them. Now I want you to notice what he says. He says, occupy till I come. Now, the word occupy, uh, as far as I can remember, and I may be wrong on this, and if I am, I apologize, but as far as I can remember, that phrase is only used at one time in the Bible. Occupy till I come. And the Greek word that's translated occupy is only used one time in the New Testament. So it's not like you can go to other places and figure out, well, what does God mean by occupy uh, till I come? Now, when you go to a dictionary and you type in the word occupy, you get three definitions. Let me give them to you. The first one is to take or fill up space, time, etc. Here's an example uh, uh, statement, uh, 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 an example sentence where you'd use the word. I occupied my evenings reading novels. Okay? The first definition for the word occupy is to take or fill up space or time. Here's the second definition. To engage or employ the mind, energy, or attention of to busy oneself. Here's an example uh, sentence. Occupy the children with a game while I prepare dinner. Here's a third definition. To be a resident or tenant of or to dwell in. Here's an example sentence. We occupied the same house for 20 years. Now, I would submit to you today that uh, whether they would say it or not, the average Christian today, I think, has just taken that first application and said, that's what Jesus wants us to do. Occupy till I come means to take up or fill up space, to just kind of wait, to just kind of hold the fort. And listen to me, there are times to hold the fort. I like singing the song, Hold the Fort. And I think there are times where, you know, like we learn about in Ephesians 6, having done all to stand, stand therefore. There are times when you've done everything you can and all you can do is wait upon the Lord. All you can do is be still and know that I am God. I understand that. And I think it's fine every once in a while for us to kind of just hold that fort and hold that line. But I'm here to tell you, the average Christian today has decided and the average fundamental Baptist church today has decided that until Jesus comes... All we are to do is to occupy, meaning let's fill up some time, let's fill up some space, let's gather together every once in a while, let's talk about Jesus, but let's just kind of hold the fort until we're done. But here's the thing, if you read the parable, you will find that that's not the case, because he gives them the talents. Some of them go and do something with it. One of them decides to do nothing with it, and when he comes back, he's upset with the one that just kind of held the fort. See, the occupy till I come here, you say, what is it that God wants us to do? He wants us to engage. 
He wants us to employ the mind, employ our energy, employ our attention to busy oneself. See, he wanted them to take those ten talents and to go do something with them, invest something with them, accomplish something with them. And I'm here to tell you today, what Jesus wants you and I to do is occupy till I come. Not, not meaning hold the fort, meaning go, do something, accomplish something, get something done. You're there in Luke, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me give you another example where uh, this kind of terminology is is talked about. You're there in Luke. You're going to go past John, past Acts, past Romans, into 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You ever notice how the commands that God gave us as a church are always an, an action command? While you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 15, let me just read for you. Matthew 22, 9 says this, Go, go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye find, bid them to the marriage. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go, go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Mark 16, 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. I'll submit to you tonight that what God wants us to do is exactly what David was doing, not just kind of holding back, holding the fort, saying, we've got the castle, we've got the kingdom, we've got the income, we've got the people, let's just sit and wait till Jesus comes back. David said, no, let's go win some battles. Let's go fight some battles. Let's go conquer more land. Let's go do something for God. And you know what? Tonight at Verity Baptist Church, you and I need to decide that we're going to advance the work of God. We're going to reach more people. Are you there in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Notice what Paul, what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Notice what he says. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul didn't say just kind of hold the fort and just kind of wait and just kind of see what happens. He said, hey, be always abounding. He said, be in movement. Be accomplishing something. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me give you another example. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Look at verse 15. Notice what Paul said. I'm always amazed at the amount of, 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 uh, the amount of work and success that the Apostle Paul had. And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Here's the question I have tonight. Where are those Christians that say, I want to spend and be spent? I'm willing to spend of my resources, of my time, of my talent, and I'm willing to be spent myself of my energy and the things that God has for us to do. See, the problem with Christianity tonight is that some of us are just kind of content to sit. We're just kind of content to be there. We're just kind of content to say, well, we've got our little victory. We've got our four. We don't need any more. But listen, what God wants you and I to do is to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. God wants us to occupy, meaning we go and engage, meaning we go and invest, meaning we go and do something. Here's a question I have for you. What are you doing to occupy till you come? What are you engaged in? What is it that you're doing that is advancing the work of God? See, every one of us could be involved in the ministry of soul winning. At Verity Baptist Church, you have no excuse to not be a soul owner. I, I've never known of a church that does more. I mean, the, when I grew up going to church, go, go, going soul winning was you showed up, you know, if you had a partner, you just kind of went wherever, did whatever. Nobody, you know, at Verity Baptist Church, we have soul winning seminars we put, we put you through. You can't make it to a soul winning seminar. We have it on DVD. 
I mean, we give you a map with directions. It's highlighted. It's organized. We make sure you're partnered with someone. We will train you. We will do everything we can to try to help you. Hey, why don't you get involved in the ministry of soul winning? Why don't you decide, I'm going to get engaged in the fight. I'm going to occupy till I come. I'm going to advance the work of God. Hey, why don't you get involved in giving? Why don't you get involved in, in giving of your finances to support the ministry? You, look, everyone can hand out a church invitation. See, I don't know how to preach the gospel. You're at a restaurant. You put that tip down, put a church invitation there. You're going to the drive-thru. You hand them the cash, hand them a church invitation with it. I'm just saying, look, can you promote a sermon on, on, on social media? You waste enough time on your Facebook. Might as well put a sermon up there and say, hey, look, listen to this. I mean, we, you can help clean, you can help set up, you can say, hey, we got, we got a picnic coming up, how can I help? We've got a ladies' activity coming up, you ladies, you can say, can I show up early, can I stay late, how can I, we got this conference coming up, can I pick somebody up, can I help, can I, I'm just saying, what is it that you are doing to advance the work of God? Because most Christians are happy to sit. And David said, you know what, I don't want to sit here for, David said, I, I, I'm a young man, I don't want to sit for the rest of my life. I want to fight. I want to advance. I want, and, and look, is it no re, it, it, there's, there's a reason why David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Because he had a vision of advancing the work of God. Something we can learn from this passage, this chapter, is that we must advance the work of God. Let's not sit and be content, but let's go and occupy till we come. Let me give you the second statement. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Number one, I said we must advance the work of God. But number two, let me say this. We must not worry about the risks. We must not worry about the risks. Look at verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 6. I highlighted these for you, but I'd like you to see them again. And David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and Syria became servant to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Notice Verse 14, the last part of verse 14, it says, And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. See, every time David got on that horse, every time David put on that sword, every time David picked up that shield, every time David led men into battle, he was taking a risk. There was a possibility that things could not go well. There was a possibility that it might cost him something, that it might not be good for him, that it might not, it, 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 there might be a risk. But you know what? David said, let God deal with that. Let God worry about that. God gave us this land. God promised us this land. We're going to go. We're going to occupy till, we come, till he comes. And we're just going to go and do it. We're going to take the risk and let God deal with it. And you know what? It was the Lord that preserved David. And even today, we're told in Proverbs 21, 31, you have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. But the Bible says, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. And here's the question I have for Christians today. Where are the Christians that are just willing to take a risk today? I mean, there was a time in Christianity when men, I mean, I think about uh, uh, William Carey, the first Baptist missionary to India took his wife and his children, put them on a boat, and never came back home. Never knew that he would come back home. And just said, we will go and advance the kingdom of God, and it might cost us something. And it cost him the lives of his wife, and it cost him the lives of his children, and it cost him much pain. But he said, we have to do something. We can't just be comfortable. And he said, let's take a risk. William Carey is known for saying this, let's attempt great things for God, and let's expect great things from God. But today we have Christians who say, let's attempt nothing for God, because it's too risky. Let's not attempt anything for God. Because it might cost me too much. 
Where is the Christianity? Where are the Esthers today? Remember Esther, when she decided that God had called her, Mordecai told her, hey, God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther decided, I'm going to go into the king, even though it was breaking the law of the land, and I might end up dying for it. And she said, hey, send a message to the Jews. Have them fast for me. And here's what Esther said. She said, if I perish, I perish. Where are those Christians today? Where are the Christians who say, you know what, let's just take the risk. Let's just go ahead and do it. Let's spend the money. Let's spend and be spent. Let's just go, you know, who cares what the media says? Who cares what people say? Let's just go knock the doors. Let's just go start the churches. Let's just go do the ministry. Let's just take a risk today. I mean, there's no Christian today. Everyone just wants to sit back and say, well, you know, let somebody else do it. I was recently reading about this missionary, William Borden. I'd like to read to you just a little bit of of William Borden's life. It says in 1904, William Borden graduated from Chicago, from a Chicago high school. As heirs to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As a young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. His friends and family were highly disappointed and expressed their disbelief and would make statements like, Bill, you're throwing your life away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. He wrote these two words, no reserves. Because they had told him that if you go and give yourself as a missionary, we're we're going to cut you off of the family business. You won't have our finances. And he wrote these words in his Bible, no reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy when he went to college, he arrived at the campus of Yale University, this was back in 1905, and trying to look like just one more freshman, very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. Borden started morning prayer groups, and it gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of the first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer before class. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. When he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not waste time in pursuit of amusement. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. In his Bible, he wrote two more words. He wrote these words under the words, uh, no, no reserves. He wrote the words, no retreats. He sailed for China because he was hoping to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrows went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written these words, no regrets. 
I'm, I'm just, the, the question I have for you tonight, and, and, and I'm preaching to myself tonight, is where is that Christian? Where, where is the Christian that says, you know what, I'm just going to give myself to God. I'm just going to take that risk. We're just going to start that ministry. We're just going to plant that church. We're just going to support that missionary. We're just going to get active. We're just going to quit being worried about the finances and the jobs and the house. And we're just going to give and spend and be spent and do something great for God. I mean, we only have a little short time on this earth. Don't we want to do something? Don't we want to accomplish something? Don't we want to reach people? Or you just want to be happy to sit there and say, well, hopefully somebody else will do it. See, David was the type of Christian. David was the type of man that he wanted to advance the work of God, but he was also not worried about taking risks. He said, let the Lord preserve me. Let God take care of me. Let me give you a third statement. Not only must we advance the work of God, not only must we not worry about the risks, but let me say this. We must remember that we have allies fighting the same enemies. Can you get back to 2 Samuel 8? Look at verse 9. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadarezor. Then Toi sent Joram, his son, unto the king to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadarezor and smitten him for Hadarezor had wars with Toi. Here you have Toi shows up and he says, Hey, David, you're fighting the same guy I'm fighting. And you know, it's easy sometimes when you're fighting this guy and you're fighting that guy and you're fighting this battle and you're fighting that battle and you're fighting, you know, here and there and you're, 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 you're fighting on every side. It's easy to get this mentality. And we've talked about it before that we're just kind of on our own. But listen to me. David found out that there was somebody else who was fighting the same guy he was fighting. I'm really excited about this Red Hot Preaching Conference coming up. We have people coming from all over the country. I mean, from New Jersey, from New York, from Florida, from, from, from uh, Washington, all over California. We have people coming from Canada. But you know what I'm really excited about? I'm really excited, and I hope you'll make time to be here, because I want you to get around other people that you may not know, and you may not you know, uh, 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 know that there are other people out there. And guess what? They're fighting the same battles you and I are fighting. Amen. They're fighting the same agenda you and I are fighting. And let us remember that we are not alone. There are allies out there who are fighting the same world and the same devil and the same agendas that you and I are fighting today. It's easy for us as a church to think, oh, well, we're the only one. But remember that there are 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And David, as he was fighting and as he was conquering, he meets Toi, who's fighting the same enemy he's fighting. See, we must advance the work of God. We must not worry about the risk. We must remember that we have allies fighting the same enemy that you and I are fighting. Let me give you the last one. Number four, we must work as a team. We must work as a team. Look at verse 15, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice. But you know what? David didn't do it alone. Verse 16, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Sariah was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Carathites and the Pelatites. And David's sons were chief rulers. And you don't have to turn here. I'll just read it for you. We've looked at this verse many times. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your conversation be as if it cometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, here's the thing. We need to attempt great things for God, and we need to expect great things from God, but we can't do it alone. 
We need each other. We need you, everyone sitting in this room. You've got a talent. You've got an ability. I mean, read Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and Romans chapter 12, where it talks about the spiritual gifts that we have and how we're to come together as a body and we can strive together for the faith of the gospel. Just today, I was talking to somebody on the phone, somebody who listens to the preaching online, and they're helping us with the permits for the next building, and they're, they're giving us all sorts of insight and helping us. And here's what I'm trying to tell you is we can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves. We need each other. We need you to show up. We need you to be faithful. We need you to get out soul winning. We need you to get involved and say, how can I help? What can I do? Here's my talent. Here's my treasure. And, and, and get involved in this thing. David advanced the kingdom, but he didn't do it by himself. And you know why most churches are failing today? Because they have people in the pew who have the time, who have the treasure, who have the talent, but they're just not that interested. It's too much of a risk. It's, it, it'll take too much time. It might cost me too much. That wasn't David. Look, I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to end my life and have it said that they did something there. That church in the Thomas, they turned that community upside down for God. But we can only do it if we decide that we're going to occupy till he comes, that we're going to advance we're not going to worry about the risk. Let's just spend the money. Let's just start the ministries. Let's just, you say, well, you, 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 what if we take on too much? Let's just, take, let's just spend and be spent and see what happens. Let's get involved. Let's remember we're not alone. We've got allies. We've got friends. And even if we don't, we've got God on our side. Amen. And let's remember that we have to work as a team. It's not just David. We need a Joab. We need a Zadok. We need an Ahimelech. We need a Benaiah. We need people to get together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.